This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Jeff Howe discusses his new book, co-written with Joey Ito, Whiplash, How to Survive Our Faster Future. Then PW Deputy Reviews Editor Gabe Habash previews PW's spring announcements. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen Bookscan. Mark, so- there's nothing happening this week. <sighs> Nothing. There's nothing There's on nothing. either list. It wait, wait, a, wait. Rose, how many do you have on your list? It debuts. is a dull week. I have three debuts. You beat me. Three. I, <laughs> I, I did. Wow. I that's, um, <laughs> that's, that's impressive. All right. Well, give us, give us your two first. All righty. The first one is Talking as Fast as I Can by Lauren Graham. This is at number three in nonfiction with uh, nearly 40,000 copies sold. Lauren plays Lorelai Gilmore on the Gilmore Girls, so that's getting a big boost. We gave it a lukewarm review. Washington Post gave it a more enthusiastic review. Yeah, people are buying people. it. So. <laughs> And, and the only other thing we have is is Final Fantasy fifteen, which is the companion to the PlayStation Xbox One role playing game, and that debuts at number ten in hardcover nonfiction and at number eighteen in trade paper. Well, that's like the definition of strictly for the fans. Strictly for the fans. But I'm, I'm impressed that there's so many people playing that game that they're willing to snap up the companion book and put it on the bestseller list. Right, exactly. I mean, to, to turn their eyes away from the screen in order to look at a book, it's pretty amazing. It does happen occasionally. I guess so. <laughs> I should know. I should know who I'm talking to. It's true. It's true. Um, though uh, you know, I'm I'm still back on fa- Final Fantasy one. You know me. I'm old. I'm old school. Uh, well, over in uh, hardcover fiction, like I said, we really don't have very much. The first debut is at number eight. It's by Anne Rice. Speaking of being old school, Prince Lestat and the Realms of Atlantis. Can you believe she's still writing these books? Um, just uh, just turning them out. Her fans are still buying them. No. This is the twelfth book in the Vampire Chronicles novel. The last one came out in. 2014, and uh, our reviewer was uh, you know, kind of ambivalent about it. So that Rice teases readers with questions: What is the place called Atalantaya, and uh, what do the vampires have to do with it? And she she draws out these questions for fully the first half of the book before a cohesive narrative coalesces around the answers. And uh, at this point, the vampire realm is uh, spanning the human world and beyond. Um, there are twelve thousand old self-cloning aliens called replomoids mm. and of course the vampires and Lestat himself uh, and it's um, it's a little bit like uh, the National Enquirer in a in a novel there's a, oh, wow. there's a lot going on okay uh, but uh, you know, we say that um, Rice does exhibit tremendous skill in making the impossible seem not only possible but logical she sets up a nail-biting dilemma involving the continued existence of vampires and the second half of the book roars satisfying past. Great. So uh, fans who stick it out through all of those questions will not be 
disappointed by the answers. Perfect. And uh, just below that, at number nine on the hardcover fiction list, The Whole Town's Talking by Fanny Flagg, best known as the author of Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle right. Stop Cafe. Um, I love the jacket copy for this. You know, all these books say, uh, in the tradition of, uh, and this one says, in the tradition of, flags can't wait to get to heaven. So she is her own tradition. <laughs> she doesn't need any other traditions. This is her tradition, yep. her southern small town tradition, and she is going to stay right with it. This story, uh, we don't have a review of it yet. Um, it's set in Elmwood Springs, Missouri, mm. a small town like any other, but something strange is happening out at the cemetery. Mm. And uh, that's that's what's going on here. Her name is enough to sell any book. Her yeah. tradition is enough to uh, yeah, yeah. to sell the book, um, and uh, and I'm I'm sure people will be very enthusiastic about it. And then uh, down at number nineteen, the Flame Bearer by Bernard Cornwell. Uh, and uh, this is the 10th book in his Saxon Stories series, uh, an epic saga of the making of England and lots of battles and gruesomeness and politics and grimness. Right. And uh, this is uh, for people who think that Game of Thrones is great, but has too many dragons in it. Uh, here you get the real history <laughs> that things like right. uh, a, a lot of these uh, epic fantasy stories are are based on and this is a long-running series very popular and uh, no surprise that it's there on the bestseller list and that's what we've got in hardcover fiction it's a very very slow week um and uh, i think the only other trend to note uh, on the trade paper side is that um we're starting to see some coloring books gaining ground again there there are nine of them on this week's trade paper list um that's uh that's pretty right. impressive including uh some self-published ones right so uh for those looking for stocking stuffers i think adult coloring books are definitely yep high on the list sure yeah yeah and uh that's what we got all right i'm rose fox and i'm mark rotella and this is publishers weekly radio next up jeff howe tells us how to cope with living in the future we'll be right back I'm Danica Kelly, author of Bestiary, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Jeff Howe on the line. His new book, co-written with Joy Ito, is Whiplash, How to Survive Our Faster Future. Hey, Jeff, so glad you could join us. Thanks. Great to be here. So talk to us about this whiplash we are all experiencing now. Sure. So, so uh, you know, the book had its origin in a meeting between Joey and I. We, we knew each other glancingly. I'd actually profiled him for Wired magazine, where I worked for about ten years. Um, you know, right, right. Uh, uh, you know, starting around two thousand, um, and uh, we had had very similar experiences. Uh, my first book, uh, crowdsourcing. Um, had uh, it, it had coined that term, and there was enough of an interest that uh, I was very fortunate to have spent a lot of time out on the lecture circuit, um, which uh, you know I understand why some authors complain about, but I loved it. I mean, I got to travel. It's like real time journalism. People get to complain and tell you you're full of crap. Uh, you know, right? Uh, uh, <laughs> you don't have to wait for an email or a, you know a letter to the editor. Um, but uh, uh, one thing that I had noticed was that I, I was I was shocked by the extent to which people, in my opinion, uh, were underestimating or just failing to comprehend the scale and nature of what we can loosely call the digital revolution. Um, and and 
and and also the 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 level of the amount of power that these people had i mean sometimes i was talking to folk you know the uh the chamber of commerce um at the fox valley uh you know morning monthly morning meeting in uh wisconsin uh, and then other times I was, you know, sitting next to Vladimir Putin addressing, uh, you know, a, a European Economic Council. Uh, and it kind of didn't vary that much. I mean, uh, you know, obviously a World Bank, uh, uh, you know, a, a World a World Bank economist, you know, has some grasp over over the scale. But when they also are not using their email, just like the Fox Valley, uh, you know, small business guy who's still having his like wife pronounce emails for him, uh, you know, all on Newt Gingrich, <laughs> it's really hard to like read some white paper and be like, yeah, I get it. Like you don't get it. You're not using a smartphone. You're not online. You're not on social media. You don't get it. Um, and Joey just being – Joey, I'm not, I'm not sure how many of your listeners w- w- will know, but he's, uh, 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 you know, J- Joey uh, created the first uh, internet service provider in Japan um, after dropping out of his freshman year of, of college, um, and then uh, and uh, sort of made his bundle, but but then just became a really astute observer of the internet at a very early period, uh, you know, blogging. About the uh, blogging about all this before we even were calling it blogs, uh, you know, writing online essays, uh, and so it was very well known to uh, people, you know, in 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 this, I guess, you know, this 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 tribe, uh, you know, tech geeky, uh, uh, you know, um, open source rights uh, kind of a, 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 you know a, a groups and. Uh, had had really been doing the same thing and 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 making the same observations, but it it, it really came and I mean I, I'm I'm aware we're aware that there's sort of an arrogance to this, but it really started as a mission as we were like well, let's like really it, it's it's actually really service oriented we want we wrote the book to help people um, you know we knew that a lot of people in that same tribe that we're talking about were going to read this and be like I read about this in Wired and I, you know our point is like we know we're not writing it for you like I hope they buy it I mean I think I think we do a good job of distilling some essential ideas but uh, uh, you know the 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 if that was the really long-winded version about you know what is the book about there's actually a very short one uh, which is is uh, you know William Gibson once wrote that the future's already here it's just unevenly distributed well we wrote this book because we want to more evenly distribute the future uh, we're, we're we're cognizant that we're very privileged Joey is now the director of the MIT Media Lab. Um, I started the media innovation program at Northeastern. I was at Wired before that. Um, I grew up in Ohio, but and he, Joey grew up in Japan and Detroit. But you know, since then we've lived in Dubai and Paris and Cambridge and New York and San Francisco and um, and uh, I didn't live in Dubai, by the way. That's Joey. <laughs> but um, you know, and and we've lived in the pockets of the future. Uh, uh, but you know, I, I guess another way of of putting it is is that you know we we were out in places that weren't those pockets of the future. And we understood that there was a disjunction uh, and we understood that th- that was going to be dangerous and that people were going to lose valuable things. They're going to lose their jobs and their careers and their houses and their cars. And, and uh, I, you know, I, I, 
it's not to say that we're pessimistic about the future. I actually think the book is very optimistic, but uh, I would be a lot more optimistic if I thought that that people had, uh, you know, that 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 majority of Americans, you know, if, if not the whole world, uh, had like sort of a basic reckoning with this new operating system, which is a. a uh, a metaphor we use in the book, and they don't. You know, they're using the industrial age operating system. They don't think they are. You know, we all think that we've moved on, but we haven't. If you look at our institutions, the, the way society is still structured, we've barely changed at all. Like I, you know, what you, you know, in the book we look at uh, the pace of discovery in synthetic biology. And, and talk to people, credible scientists, Harvard, MIT scientists, who think the human species will fork, possibly within our lifetime. Fork, that's a software term, like in, in open source software, that means versioning, like that we would create multiple species of homo sapiens because the, the, the ability to do so, to do things like uh, the ability to eradicate uh, susceptibility to any virus is going to is going to become possible. I mean, I, I don't know if that particular thing is going to become possible, but that's the kind of thing, uh, you know, that we're going to face. There are going to be big, 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 big changes, and and we have to change the way we think now in order to uh, you know meet uh, meet those tra- the challenges that accompany them. So obviously, the scope here is enormous. You're talking about technology in every sense of the word, about communications technology, about uh, the technology we use to make things, about the technology we use to to understand the world around us. Uh, how do you package that all up and make it into a book? <laughs> By uh, spending five years on a very short book. <laughs> I used to have fantasies about halfway through that I could time travel back to Joey and I in our first meeting, and I would shake us. I'd be like, are you insane? Look, you're trying to write a book about everything. No one writes a book about everything. Like, like, exercise discipline now, otherwise your life is going to be miserable in 2014. Because my life was miserable in 2014. I mean, our uh, uh, the book is organized around nine principles, and the idea is that these nine principles while not, you know, an exhaustive representation of this new operating system we're talking about is is pretty good, is pretty representative. And, you know, we vetted these past, uh, you know, it, it's we sort of introduced these as guiding as, as a as a as a bit of a, uh, you know, I guess, like compass points at, at the MIT Media Lab, you know, in 2013, shortly after we we uh, uh, came up with them. Um, but th- that's all well and good. And there are plenty of, you know, businessy books out there that are, you know, nine ways to, you know, uh, you know, manage your employees with more uh, humility and grace. God knows. I don't know. I'm making that up. But, um, uh, you know, to actually, you know, our principles are things like resilience over strength, um, uh, disobedience over compliance, um, pull over push, diversity over uh, uh, ability. Um, you know, uh, the, the, our point being, albeit a little simplified, uh, that it's not just that things have changed, but things are, are flip-flopping. It's, it's a world turned upside down uh, in, in a lot of ways. And so we constructed the principles that way. But w- when it comes to how do you research something like uh, uh, you know, diversity, actually diversity is a pretty easy one, but, uh, you know, disobedience over compliance. I mean, you just write about the sex pistols or something. I mean, it's, not, <laughs> it's, it's hard. I mean, there, and, and plus we, we knew very well that, 
we wanted to – I mean it was in some ways a book about the Media Lab. There's this long tradition of books about the Media Lab. Um, we knew we didn't want to – a couple of those books have been – uh, well, you know, well written and totally respectable. Uh, not what we wanted to write. Um, some of them have, you know, every director sort of does his version of the Media Lab book, and and some of them are what Wired used to call walk along the waterfront. It's you know, it's it's here. Here's this research group, and everyone gets the same number of pages, and and we were really much more irreverent. I mean, there are people that I'm sad to say, and I really am sad and remiss to say, like they're, most of the researchers at the lab aren't even mentioned, um, but we knew it, we wanted it to be couched in a lot of the amazing stuff that was happening at the lab, but also amazing stuff that was happening um, you know, at other universities and other uh, private, you know, uh, you know, Google Labs and uh, Google's, uh, you know, DeepMind, the London uh, Artificial Intelligence Research Center. Uh, you know, there's great stuff everywhere. We didn't want to be limited to the lab, and and so we figured out halfway through a a, a, a fix. Um, you know, Joey said, I, I'm getting bored of the principles and this is going to happen, right? Like we'd been working on the book for a year and a half. Um, and, and, you know, Joey and I had a really successful, but unique collaboration. Um, and, uh, you know, Joey is, you know, uh, uh, bobbing around the world, speaking to different audiences and having like crazy conversations with Nobel Prize winners. And, you know, I'm at home writing and raising, you know, two kids in a special needs, you know, severely autistic. Like I, you know, we just had these completely different lives. Um, but uh, we really were sort of in tune with each other on, on kind of different functions. Uh, and And so he came back and he would get really jazzed about um, for a while, it was you know human microbiota, which is you know like the the, um, the 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 dense ball of the dense ecosystem of flora and fauna that inhabit the human gut, um, that constitutes by the way three out of every four cells in the human body that don't even belong to you; they belong to another organism. Um, and then for a while, it was all about bit Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. For a while, it was about you know. Stuxnet and and you know these frankly terrifying threats to cybersecurity, um, and and it was every one of these was just this amazing, uh, you know it was very I, I was very privileged I mean I, I because you know Joey's access um, you know I remember at one point we were really doing this deep dive on cybersecurity issues and I said you know I really need to talk to like. I don't know, someone, you know, a cyber spook, like someone who has like some, some deep knowledge, like just off record. I, I don't need to quote. I mean, I do almost all my stuff off record. I just want to learn. Um, and he was like, oh yeah, you should talk to my friend Keith. And then he, he does an email intro with Keith Alexander. And for like three days, I'm like, oh my God, that's so ironic that Joey's cyber spooky friend would have the same <laughs> name as the former <laughs> NSA director. Like that's stunning. <laughs> Who would think before I was finally like, oh, <laughs> that's not a coincidence. That's Keith fucking Alexander, the former director of the National Security Agency. Um, and so, I, you know, to be able to have those conversations, um, it, 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 it wound up giving us a, a structure, which was that that it's it's we had like a lattice. So like the chapters, each chapter is devoted to, um, a, 
to one of these nine principles, but we're actually telling four or five stories. Um, and we don't even pretend that they're representative, but they are five areas where, where you know, that pocket of the future is really evident um, and, and vital and vibrant and robust. Um, so like one is education. Um, because uh, it, it's we, we had one principle that was so central to everything that we it sort of became it, we it's no longer even a principle per se it just got embedded in the book and it's learning over education and the idea is you know that that uh, education is something someone does to you learning is something you do to, for yourself um, and and that's very much a principle at the lab it's very much has driven uh, there's a, a research group there in particular. Um, that's responsible for everything from Lego's resurgence with Lego Mindstorms, uh, Scratch, which is the, by far the number one children's programming language in the world right now, um, and is a you know a, a tail that wags the dog in education in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, uh, then another big story is synthetic biology and just bio in general. A lot of people are saying that you know the, the 21st century will be the biological century. Um, you know, and, and indeed, uh, you know, as Moore's law peters out, like already what we think of as, as, as digital, as computers, um, you know, uh, 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 if you look at places like Redmond and Silicon Valley, people are already talking about DNA computing and quantum computing. So, uh, you know, that sort of line between analog and digital and machine and biology, that's already breaking down now. I mean, that's not the future. That's happening right now. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and, and we had some really other amazing stories from areas like uh, uh, digital currency. And, it, you know, the, the, the story we found was that, you know, we're not talking about uh, you know, a kooky place in Boulder that will accept your Bitcoin to, you know, uh, buy a quarter bag of Sensamelia. We're, we're, we're talking about, uh, you know, a worldwide currency that the Bank of London is, is seriously considering placing its imprimatur on uh, that would basically bank the two billion people in the world that are currently unbanked. Uh, thus utterly disruptive entire financial service industry. I mean, it would bring a lot of money rushing in and suddenly you're able to market and sell to people who have access to capital for the first time in their lives. Um, but, you know, it would probably be the most, uh, you know, a an effective digital currency going big, going broad, which is perfectly possible and possibly even probable, um, would maybe be the most dramatic thing to have happened in money and finance in human history. Um, so, you know, it was big, big stuff. And so we figured, let's tell the principles through those stories. And that's what we did. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. 
Welcome back. We're talking with Jeff Howe, co-author of Whiplash, who's giving us an amazing kind of bird's eye view of uh, all the many topics discussed in this book. But I want to touch on the the sort of real world for people right now aspects. You talked about um, people being at risk of losing their jobs and careers, losing their homes. How does what you're discussing affect people's real lives right now? Not just people who are deep in the digital revolution and working on it, but people who, uh, as you say, you know, the guy whose wife prints out his emails, um, the folks who are still the spouses yeah. who are sharing an AOL account, um, you know, the people who have not caught up. How does this uh, affect them and their lives? I would argue in very direct ways that they can immediately, um, you know, institute into, into their life. One of the big ones being, um, I, I think that we are, uh, that, that, you know, in the same way that we, we have failed to estimate, uh, the scale of change, uh, you know, ushered in by, uh, you know Moore's law, you know, which is just the 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 fact that you can get what was a a an entire floor of IBM of computing power into your pocket thirty years later. That's Moore's law, um, and the internet, um, and and now we're underestimating what artificial intelligence is going to do and do fairly soon uh, to the American workforce, um, uh, and it's not so much that people need to you know run around like chicken little they just they, they you know our whole point is change your thinking like be prepared for it so ai is really good at lots of stuff and it's really good at lots when people think automation they think building cars and serving coffee um and in fact you know baristas and and uh well just one one of the you know one of the first occupations and it's a massive one i think it's it's something like the third or fourth largest occupation by vocational type in the u.s is truck driver mm-hmm. um and people are starting to say that you know that's that's going to go uh away fast i mean like fast being you know nothing in our book is next year everything near term for us is probably five years from now um but five years is uh, you know for anyone out of college knows <laughs> five years goes by in a blink. I mean, that's, that's tomorrow. Um, but I, we would rather people not be scared. We would rather them think, wait, what is AI good at? And what is AI bad at? Well, AI is actually really good at a lot of things like, uh, uh, that doctors and lawyers do. It's not, it's, you know, the, the, the coming disruption is going to be less to manufacturing than it will be to professional services. Um, but there's a lot of really wonderful things that humans are really good at uh, that, um, that 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 uh, the AI just that computers that machines are, are probably never going to be good at, or at least not for a really long time. Uh, and that's that's creative stuff and social stuff. Um, you know, like like we actually we really kind of desperately need uh, robots of some sort to help with things like elder care. Mm-hmm. But but that's going to be a hybrid because the other thing we really, really need with elder care is human touch and people who excel at that. And, you know, I mean, what I know is the caregiver to a special needs son. Like, I mean, there is no more noble thing you can do. Um, and so I, I think I think that professions like that will become highly valued. Maybe. I mean, I think they are now, but I think they'll be become economically valued. Um, and, and I think we'll see a lot of 
a lot of hybrid professions where where uh, where you see AI intruding, um, but but for people who adapted, you know, early and and with some verve, you know, like with some enthusiasm. Um, it's not so much enthusiasm, but it's 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 not just early either. Sorry to kind of meander and try and put a fine point out, but it's for people who embrace this, who see it coming and, and embrace it before it has time, you know, before the wave has time to sweep them off their feet. In fact, that may be a good metaphor. Like as long as you see the ocean wave coming, you're fine. It can be huge as long as you dive into it and your body's ready for it. You're fine. But, you know, it's if you're not looking that you get, you know, battered. I mean, you, you don't want the wave to be in control. You want to be in control of, of where you are in the wave. And I, I actually, as, you know, as glib as that sounds, I think that probably is pretty, a pretty apt metaphor. Um, you know, I, I, think, I think there's a big place for humans, but it's, it's not going to be the same places. Um, and then the, the, the other way that, I mean, this gets more into politics, but it, but it's also very near term. I mean, it's, it's this, it's this election, it's, it's the conversations we're having right now um, around tax policy and income distribution is, is just, I mean, I, I'm just aghast. I mean, we're, we're simply going to have a larger class of permanently unemployed people in an age with artificial intelligence. We just are. Like, I don't see any way around it. Like, five years of research, and I just... You know, with almost everything else that we researched, you know, it was sort of unending layers of complexity. And I could give you arguments and counterarguments for why, in fact, the human species won't fork and synthetic biology will turn into a big bust. Like those those arguments are there. And I mean, we try to give them their due in the book to show all sides. But with AI, it's just I mean, unless we suddenly, uh, you know, uh, uh disavow capitalism altogether then simple market imperatives are going to uh, are going to realize efficiencies through increased automation and, and artificial intelligence is going to be a big big part of that and and that's going to mean uh, things like universal basic income where where a significant part of the population maybe just simply everyone gets a check for being a human being in that geographical space in that uh, you know, temporal time, like, like uh, it, it, that, that will be your reward for existing. Um, and, and I don't, uh, uh, I don't see a way around some version of that. I, I think, uh, you know, AI supplanting a lot of the present labor force, uh, I think is unavoidable. Um, how we meet that challenge is, is incredibly varied and flexible. I mean, there's all sorts of creative things we could do. I mean, I, uh, I taught this book this semester at, at Northeastern and, and my students came up with brilliant ideas. I mean, they, their take on it was, uh, okay. So if you have like 25, 30%, uh, unemployment, probably 50, 60% when you're talking about young people, well then, you know, get all JFK on their asses and, 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 and give them challenges, give them moonshots. Like it's not about, you know, maybe that is how they get their UBI check, but it stops becoming about developing a career and, and labor begins to become organized around solving a problem. And, and so, you know, I, I like that, that idea really excites me. I think that, I think that could actually work. And I think it's kind of amazing. And, and I think it's a testament to how thinking differently is really, 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 really hard, um, but can be incredibly powerful. 
you've you've come up with uh, organizing principles to to help the reader navigate this this chaotic landscape. Can you just give us a couple of examples? Sure. So I, I think resilience over strength is one that a lot of readers will be familiar with, but one that is, you know, no less important for all that. Uh, it's um, it, it, it is a sort of like a, a, a precept or, a, you know, a, a, like a, a, a maxim for an age in which, uh, uh, you know, the unexpected event is much more is to be much more expected. Like the unpredictable is much more predictable, you know, or as, as these events are often called, um, you know, black swan events um, where, uh, you know, the thing that you never thought would happen, i.e. the 2008 financial crash happens. Um, and, and so, so resilience is a way of organizing your resources, whether that's the, you know, your house, uh, uh, you know, your savings account, your investments, um, even just how you organize your time uh, uh, to whether it's a country uh, to uh, assume that there will be failures, uh, defeats, um, you know, that uh, uh, well, one metaphor, it's really a synecdoche because it's 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 important in and of itself. But it's also representational of this larger idea is is in cybersecurity. Um, so I, I, I will forget the exact statistic, but it's something stunning. Like when, when a big corporation or whatever, or just a company puts a new server online, you know, if you are even a medium-sized company, uh, much less a Walmart, you have thousands, maybe, I don't even know, hundreds of thousands of servers in various server, server farms, you know, out in Nevada and Eastern Oregon and Washington, and are, you, you probably outsource them. So Amazon just has like huge, massive server farms that stretch on for miles. In, in corporate America, or, you know, corporations around the world, they, they will lease these on a day-to-day basis for their needs. When a new one goes online, it is compromised within minutes. So, so not only can you not keep someone from penetrating, you know, that, that not only like does strength not work, like to put up an impenetrable wall, um, but it, it, it fails almost instantly. And, and, but so, so why are we all walking around and still functioning? Because, because the way cybersecurity has been, uh, has been organized for years now is to be resilient. And so that server continues functioning, even though some like maybe 2% of it has been uh, – of that bandwidth is being used by uh, you know, hackers for the Chinese government. Another 4% is for hackers working for the American government because they're there too. Um, and another 1% is Russia and another 2% is Ukraine and then there's some Iranians. Then there's all of like the organized crime. And a lot of it is probably just porn because if it's on the internet, a lot of everything is just porn uh, <laughs> <laughs> and drugs um, because we're humans um, and, and those things will never go away. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's, we have to figure out how to work within that. And so that's, that's resilience over strength. Um, I, one of my favorites is disobedience over compliance. Um, and, and it really goes – I mean that's one that I would say like people, people should be getting their heads around that now. Um, because, you know, compliance and obedience, and it doesn't mean, you know, run a red light. Um, it doesn't mean like, you know, put a tack on your teacher's seat. Uh, it, it just means that, um, that, that 
the thing that like computers won't be able to do the really human stuff. Well, that's disobedience. Like computers are good at compliance and, and, and essentially what you had in, and, and Joey, Joey wrote some of these passages, I think, pretty brilliantly. Um, you know, w- when you look at the 19th century, you look at uh, the educational revolution that Horace Mann uh, brings in. Uh, there are, for very philanthropic, admirable reasons, the educational system is reformed to make people like machines. Because otherwise they were screwed. I mean, you know, once the Industrial Revolution set in, and like the Digital Revolution, it took forever. Um, a big part of our research was I went back, I spent a whole summer just looking at what happened in New York City in 1815. And 40 years after Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations had been written, they, they still didn't see it coming. I mean, it was amazing. Um, but once it did set in, you know, 1850s, 1860s, it hit with a vengeance, and you know, entire industries were just put out of work. And so, if 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 the people couldn't, I mean, granted, it was better to be an independent artisan than to be on an assembly line for 15 hours a day just doing the same thing. But worse than that was starving. And and so we reformed the educational system so that people wouldn't die, so that people would have a job, and so that you know we could keep the factories at full employment and grow our GDP. I mean, let's be honest, but. Uh, uh, you know, we still have that same educational system. We still we still ask people to behave in really similar ways. But you know, uh, uh, having people be you know predictable and obedient and punctual these are things machines are good at. We have to become good at things that machines can't do, not the stuff they can do. That's why we say it's that this is the whole thing with it flip-flopping. Like it's not that it's just different, it's a, it's opposite world. We've been talking with Jeff Howe and you can find his book Whiplash in stores right now. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. This has been incredibly enlightening. Great. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Deputy Reviews Editor Gabe Habash talks about big books for spring 2017. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Robert Canigal. I'm the author of Eyes on the Street, The Life of Jane Jacobs. And here we are on Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Deputy Reviews Editor Gabe Habash is here to tell us all about PW's spring announcements issue. Hi, Gabe. Hi, guys. How are you? We're good. So um, I, I think actually we're all going to collaborate on this one a little bit as we get to do with these big announcements issues and our best books. We've all contributed. All of the editors have come together to talk about the the most anticipated books coming out in the spring, which is very broadly defined as, I believe, February through July. So uh, give us a sense of what the big books have been on your end, what you're very excited about for the spring. Um, yeah, so the I, I do fiction rev- uh, general literary fiction reviews, um, so I was looking at those for the announcements issue, and uh, a few that really stood out to me... Um, First of all, was the first one was Lincoln and the Bardo, which is George Saunders' uh, first novel. Um, he's best known for you know his stories that he's been writing for a number of years, a lot of which appear in the New Yorker, uh, among other places. And um, this one is this one's been highly anticipated for a while. It comes out in February, and um, it's based around the death of Willie Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln's son, mm-hmm. and um, 
anybody who's read a George Saunders story knows that he tends to bring in some more uh, wacky or genre elements. So this one, um, when Willie goes to the Georgetown Cemetery, he's sort of stuck in this, um, in the Bardo, which is a Tibetan term for a liminal state, um, sort of like purgatory. So he's like uh, between death and life, and he meets some sort of spectral characters. And um, George Saunders is a really funny writer. He sort of, you know, made his name on um, writing comical things, uh, but he also writes really humane and um, deeply empathetic uh, pieces of fiction, and this one's no exception. So there's some uh, humor to be sure, but then there's also, uh, we, we actually reviewed this a while back cause they got galleys to us really earlier, but, um, and we started the review and the, the reviewer said that, um, the dominant tone is melancholy. I mean, you get a lot of, uh, you see a lot of Abraham Lincoln, you know, grieving for his son. Um, but you know, this is a really, really um inventively structured book um there's some mixed doc i think they're fictional documents that he mixes in along with some scenes that are just straight dialogue sort of like reading a play Hmm. um and you know this is only going to add to his following so um so that's one that's called lincoln and the bardo um another one that is big on the literary front is hannah tinty's first um novel in i think eight or nine years uh her last one was the good thief i think was 2008 and this one's called the 12 lives of samuel holly and um it it reimagines the uh hercules myth and um i actually saw her um speak about the book and she was talking about how um this main character samuel holly has um these scars on his body and um the book is sort of structured around the origin of how he got the scars each scar mm-hmm. so you get sort of um a reimagining of the hercules myth by going into his criminal past and finding out how he got them and then the human aspect of the book is he has a daughter who's uh sort of trying to trust him and the more she finds out about him um the more their relationship is strained so this is a big uh it's like a it's a big character driven and sort of high concept novel and uh it's going to appeal to a lot of people um and our reviewer really liked it um said it was really rich and intricate and smart and um that's that's just going to be a really big book and that's out in april um and then on the literary fiction front the last book i wanted to mention was is a personal favorite of mine and that's out in march and that's called ill will and it's by Dan Sean. The author's last name is C-H-A-O-N. And he's been writing for, um, I guess, a couple decades now. And this is his first novel since Await Your Reply, which PW actually put in the top 10 books of uh, whatever year it was. I think it was maybe 2009 or 10. Mm-hmm. Um, Await Your Reply was that one. And this one is... This one is... Uh, one of the more bleak and depressing books I've read in a long time. It's five, it's about 500 pages and it's just, uh, it's, if I were to pitch it, I would say it's like a Stephen King novel, but without the bad sentences. Um, so the, the premise is that, um, there's this 
uh, like middle-aged psychologist who lives in the uh, Cleveland suburbs, and his name's Dustin, and he's sort of drifting through life. His wife has just died um, from, uh, I think think it's uh, cancer, and his two sons are sort of uh, separated from him. They, They don't really pay attention to him. And he and Dustin sort of uh, tends sort of more and more loses his grip on reality. And at the center of that is his adopted brother from when he was a child who was convicted of killing Dustin's parents. And part of the reason why he went to prison was because of Dustin's testimony. And he's just been cleared and exonerated because of DNA evidence decades later and Dustin is aware that this this man has just been released from prison and uh, so all this stuff from his past comes rushing back at the worst possible time in his life and it's just incredibly bleak but uh, the writing is incredible there are some uh, structural risks that Sean takes that are pretty amazing and pay off and uh, it's just an incredibly like dark and uh, sort of evil book and uh, I really recommend it. That's and, out in March. And when we do know that you tend to lean toward the dark, yeah. evil, yeah. morose book. So this, and this one definitely fits the uh, gay bill. Yeah, this is, so it's, it's like I said, it's 500 pages, but yeah. you'll read it in like, you know, a and couple Gabe days. And length. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so so this, the, this was basically made for you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, I, I share a similar fondness for books that beat you up and yeah. take your lunch money. Yeah. You know, some, sometimes you really just, you really just kind of need that thrashing. Yep. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of books with happy endings, as we all know, uh, over in the romance genre. Mm-hmm. But uh, I also really love the gritty horror stuff. Yeah. yeah I'll, I'll take it all. Um, and uh, yeah, we've, we've got a pretty good range of books, definitely on the science fiction list this year um, or this this spring. The mood is not what I would call upbeat. Uh, a lot of people are writing about near future ecological catastrophe, economic catastrophe, uh, and you know, of course these books were all written before the election. So in the next year or two, I think things will probably get even bleaker by the prognosticators. Um, but uh, there's still a bit of optimism there. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson. Uh, who is uh, always very optimistic about his uh, near futures, wrote a book called New York 2140 that's coming out in March. Uh, He finds ways to paint a hopeful picture of a near future New York where rising seas have turned the streets into canals, but everything's great. It's really, it's, it's like, it's, it's nice. It's the new Venice. Um, So, you know, global warming, catastrophe and all that but but in a in a somewhat more pleasant soft pedaled way um and uh meanwhile cory doctorow who uh past guest on the show uh, who's also known for writing a lot of near future works with uh, a more social political bent uh is coming out with a book called walk away this is his first book for adults in uh, nearly a decade i think and uh, in this one it's a near future where um the gulfs between rich and poor are so huge um that the poor basically just give up they check out of society altogether they're like there's nothing here for us the the super rich are so super rich that um we we're we're just we're out by Sia and uh, and they they literally walk away from society altogether uh, and there is not so much material scarcity uh, in this vision of the future because you, know, you can walk up to a machine and print out some clothing or print out some food but uh, you know the 
the differences, the class differences are all exacerbated when one of the walkaways discovers the secret to immortality, which is, of course, the one thing the rich want and have not been able to have. Mm. So uh, lots of class tensions there. And a book that I'm very, very excited about called Bannerless by Carrie Vaughn uh, coming out in July. Uh, I haven't seen a copy of it yet, but um, she's been writing several stories, uh, including some that were award nominated uh, set in this particular near future setting, which is, uh, again, more on the social side of things. Um, In this case, resources are scarce. And so people uh, sort of have to prove that they can uh, the communities have to prove that they can afford to feed another mouth in order to have a child. Uh, and and it's about a, a crew of sailors uh, in, you know, kind of making their way in, in, this, uh, in this dystopian future. Um, the short stories set in this world are just wonderful. They're incredibly vivid and human and deeply emotional. And uh, I can't wait to see what she does with it. Uh, novel length so uh, lots of lots of good stuff coming out uh, and there are definitely going to be books there that will make you cry uh, but I, I think like they're all really determined to hold on in some way to that thread of human optimism human survival that that people will find a way to persevere uh, and then over in romance, um, a lot of small town love stories. That's uh, we just covered that in our romance feature. Uh, small towns and small town contemporaries are very big at the moment, uh, and some intense romantic thrillers. So even if you know that there's going to be a happy ending, people are starting to really want that danger along the way. And uh, a couple of uh, highlights for me: there's a new Nora Roberts, uh, and I know that it sort of seems like we should just put any book by Nora Roberts on our announcements list because, of course, it's going to be a mega bestseller. But her book from last year, The Obsession, just knocked me out. Uh, And unlike people like James Patterson, she's really clearly writing all of her books herself. Like, she just sits down and writes another great book. Uh, And so her book coming out in June is called Come Sundown, and uh, it's romantic suspense um, full of a series of murders, a heap of complicated family drama, uh, all in a ranch on Montana. Uh, and uh, she she really does something new with every book, and she's just a wildly tremendous writer. So really looking forward to that. Uh, and uh, also excited about uh, The Lilac Bouquet by Carolyn Brown. She's well known for cowboy romances, like the, the, the really kind of cheesy kind with the shirtless guy on the cover, the little mass markets. She's making uh, more of a move into more almost more like a contemporary women's fiction. Um, and this one is just a sweet Southern story uh, about uh, a woman who's determined to have the wedding of her dreams, despite all of the family baggage and stress that comes along with that. And uh, I think that's going to be, uh, I think it's going to do interesting things for her career to see if she can really make this leap. And she's a very good writer. And I think that she can pull that off. Uh, so you know, there's, um, I feel like a lot of these books are almost, quieter and more complex than romances have traditionally been. Um, There's more, a lot of thoughts about the pros and cons of building a life with someone, um, much less about getting swept off your feet. We've really left the bodice ripper days behind. I do feel as we've been talking about, you know, as we've been talking, especially on the uh, top 10 lists, uh, you know, the bestseller lists, 
that, that as we've been talking about romance, they have become much more complex as you've been describing them. So Yeah, I, th- I think the line between romance and women's fiction, which was never very strongly drawn to begin with, has really blurred. Uh, these are very much books about women building the lives that they want and finding themselves and um, being determined to claim happiness. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a story that a lot of people really need. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, and always have. Women have always needed that story, but especially right now. And I think um, the authors are most successful when they acknowledge that there are real difficulties and real challenges and real compromises that you have to make on the way to a happy ending. But that happiness is still possible even when you factor all those things in. Sounds like a great list. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be uh, a good spring. Let's get Nora Roberts on the show. <laughs> I would be delighted. She is such a character. Uh, she's she's just she's got this great sort of whiskey rough voice, yeah. and uh, I I think she'd be a terrific interviewer. Wow, we'll we'll see if we can it. make it happen. All right. So what's happening over on the nonfiction side of the announcement? So you know I'm I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, two categories. Um, these two categories I I handle. To my bigger categories. The first one, memoirs and, and biographies. And I think one of the biggest ones on here is a, um, it's a celebrity memoir, memoir of Caitlyn uh, Jenner. Uh, and this is going to be this from Grand Central, um, starting out the gate with about 400,000 announced uh, copies. So mm-hmm. that's going to be pretty big. But there's, there's also one, uh, Richard Ford, obviously Pulitzer Prize winner. You know, winning fiction writer. He's coming out with a memoir called Between Them, Remembering My Parents. And he, he divides this memoir in two parts. I, I'm, I'm assuming one for each parent, of uh, both of whom he lost when he was, when he was young. Um, looking down a little bit, Theft by Finding Diaries, uh, David Sedaris. And these are his collections from four decades of diaries that inspired the comic's autobiographical essays. So that, that'll be... Um, I think pretty big up there. And then we have a couple of books we've already reviewed, given stars to The Close to Happy, A Reckoning with Depression by Daphne Merkin. This is a personal account with you know, about her life um, and, and in her affliction, you know, being afflicted with depression and coming from an affluent but neglected uh, childhood. And uh, there's also Roxanne Gay, Hunger, A Memoir of My Body. And this is about her struggle to understand the anxieties and the pleasures surrounding food that, that she's grown up with. And, and I, I mean, this is something that's a, um, this category is just continues to grow. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I remember seeing this, I mean, maybe about, you know, half a dozen years ago and it just continues to grow and this seems like a pretty rich list coming out um just going to jump over to um cooking food cookbooks um each 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 season you know last year was the big celebrity chefs we had mario batali anthony Bourdain, people coming out with cook on a garden um and this this spring we have i I think we're kind of looking more towards uh family cooking at home Mm -hmm. dinner is a big subject we have two dinner uh cookbooks one by elizabeth bard uh dinner chez moi 50 french uh, secrets to joyful eating and entertaining and then we've got new york times food columnist uh dinner changing the game Melissa Clark so that's going to be pretty big Um, and then as far as trends in uh, international cookbooks we see a continued one in Mexico towards Mexico so we've got Casa Marcella recipes and food stories of my life in the Californias but but this is um kind of inspired by by uh, Mexican cooking and then we have um 
Uh, Bangkok. We were looking towards Southeast Asia. That's becoming huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I've and seen this a lot one, of that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, the, and this is uh, Bangkok recipes and stories from the heartland of Thailand. Uh, and other than that, we've got one uh, one book that that is kind of small in. Uh, um, size, um, but it's from Frank Bruni and Jennifer uh, Steinauer, both of the New York Times, and and this kind of like a chatty conversation of recipes of all-American kind of classic iconic dishes. It's called A Meatloaf in Every Oven, Two Chatty Cooks, One Iconic Dish, and Dozens of Recipes from Moms to Mario Batali. So this is a conversation between the two. I uh, just got the review, and the reviewer just really liked it, gave it a star. So... Um, and that's just highlighting a few, uh, few there. So it definitely so, sounds like more of a down home list. Yeah. Um, less less about the super fancy. Um, I don't even remember the last time I heard someone mention molecular gastronomy, but this is right, this is exactly. much more about your slow cooker. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then uh, Gabe, there are a couple of uh, nonfiction that kind of stuck out for you. Yeah. Um, so on the history, or uh, I guess the specific category for this one is true crime, uh, keeping with the dark theme that we were talking about earlier. Um, this is Killers of the Flower Moon, the Osage Murders, and the Birth of the FBI, and it's by David Gran, who's a New Yorker staff writer. He most recently, I think, did The Lost City of Z, which was a big book. Um, yeah. And this is... Uh, sort of talks. I don't. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this story. I wasn't until I saw this book, which actually comes out in April. But we have the review in, and it's starred. Um, that talks about a spree of murders that uh, occurred in Oklahoma in the uh, 1920s, um, where at least two dozen people were murdered by a killer or killers that were apparently targeting members of the Osage Indian na- Nation, who at the time were considered. Uh, the wealthiest people per capita in the world, thanks to the discovery of oil beneath uh, their land, um, and they tra- then and Grand traces this back to the 1921 disappearance of two Osage uh, Indians and how the outcry over the killings led to the involvement in 1925 of an obscure, a quote unquote obscure branch of the Justice Department, which uh, turned out to become. Uh, the FBI. Um, so this is just a really remarkable story, both from a true crimes perspective and from a history standpoint. And you see how the the birth of the FBI came out of that. that yeah, David cool. Grant is. Uh, I remember his previous book. Uh, just just a fantastic yeah. writer. Yeah, and then so then the last ones I wanted to mention um, really briefly um, because I don't know if we have reviews or even galleys for either of them at this point, but uh, they're both literary essay. Um, criticism books, uh, so nonfiction. The first is uh, Joan Didion has a new book, which is always an event, and it's called South and West from a Notebook. That's out March 7th from Knopf. And um, she, Joan Didion's been a, a diligent notebook keeper throughout her whole life and career. And so this is sort of um, her sharing her entries all the way back to the 1970 road trip through the South and um, the 1976... Uh, coverage of the Patty Hearst trial she did for Rolling Stone. So some some good insight into her thinking during all those events. And then the last one uh, I wanted to mention is uh, another personal favorite writer of mine, uh, Tom McCarthy, who's probably best known for Remainder. Um, he's a English writer. He has his first uh, essay collection coming out from New York Review of Books in May, and that's called Typewriters, Bombs, Jellyfish. And... Uh, 
Wow. He's he's a singular mind, to put it, <laughs> to put it lightly. And these these are collected essays over a decade of his uh, work in the Believer and London Review of Books, and he talks about um, you know everything from Kafka to Joyce to um, Kathy Acker and David Lynch and Sonic Youth. So he's he's a that's going to be a really big book, I think. Wow, that's that sounds uh, very intense. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, Gabe, thank you so much for coming in to look over the announcements list with us. There are lots more listings and, um, of course, all of the books in the top 10 most anticipated books in every category. So keep an eye out for those uh, hitting our website, I believe, today and uh, going out in our issue on Monday. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Gabe. Thank you, guys. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hello, I am Lawrence Levy, author of To Pixar and Beyond, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotel, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another tasty author interview, and we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 